5 through 9. And you can follow along with me as I read. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Well, it has been said that the preacher has two jobs, namely to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. Clearly, the author of Hebrews understood his duty in this regard. In the first four verses of this chapter, he did everything in his power to afflict the comfortable, to wake us up to our danger of the danger of drifting away, the possibility of us missing the gospel. But in verses 5 through 9, I think his goal is to comfort the afflicted. And how does he hope to comfort us? Well, I think he wants to inspire us with the truth about God's glorious purpose for man. Do you understand what your purpose is, why God created you, and what the end of it all will be? I think he wants to inspire us with the truth about God's glorious purpose for man in Christ. He wants us to remember the glorious future God has prepared for all who leave this life clinging with all their might to the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You know, I think most of us have a very narrow and limited view of what Jesus has saved us into. I think most of us have a pretty good understanding of what he saved us out of, at least all of you who believe. Because for you, it was like when you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, especially if you were an an adult or an older teenager, it was like one day you just woke up as if from, from a long dream and everything was suddenly real. And you look back on your previous life and thought, I've been sleeping all of these years and wasting all of this time. We know what God saved us out of, but do you understand what he saved you into? It's not just that he saved us out of sin and out of a life of rebellion against God into the church and into salvation, into the redemption, the forgiveness of sins in his blood. It is so much more than that. It's so much more. But somehow many of us have this idea of floating around on clouds, being transformed perhaps into little pudgy babies with silly little wings, playing harps on the clouds for eternity. Is that heaven? Is that what eternity has for us? I mean, come on, if that's all there is, that sounds a little weird and really boring. I get asked fairly frequently, what's heaven going to be like? I mean, do we know anything about it? Are we going to actually do anything, or is it just going to be like a perpetual church service? And maybe it'll be Hebrews for eternity. What's it going to be like? Well, we don't truly understand what God's purposes are for us in Christ. 
when his plan for the present world comes to an end. But the writers of Scripture knew, at least in part. And here there are three truths in this text by which the author hopes to inspire us to trust and to persevere in Christ until the end. What are these three truths? Well, the first one, first truth is a reminder of the intended rule of man in creation. The intended rule of man in creation. Look at verse 5. For he, that is God, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. Once again, the writer is back to making his point about the inferiority of angels and the supremacy of Christ. The people had a very, very high view of angels, no doubt because God had given the law through angels. They, according to Galatians, had ordained the law for man. And so they had a very, very high view of angels. But the author of Hebrews is saying that may be true, that the angels are great, they are glorious, but they are nothing compared to Christ. Your hope should not be in anything less than Christ. He is our hope and our salvation. And so he comes back once again after his warning about the possibility of some drifting right past the gospel, even though they've heard it again and again and again and again and have received residual and secondary benefits by hanging out with God's people or maybe even being married to a believer while they yet have not trusted Christ. You've received all of this benefit and yet you reject him. There is no hope for you if you reject so great a salvation. And so he points back to the fact that Christ is superior to angels. You remember in chapter 1, verse 5, he pointed out that God never called an angel by the name Son, as he did Jesus. In verse 6, he reminds us, chapter 1, that God commanded the angels to worship Christ because he is superior to them. In verses 8 and 9, he explains that the angels are servants, but the Son is very God of very God. And then in verses 10 through 14, he shows that Christ is the creator king, while the angels are simply ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. But what is that salvation? What has he saved us into? What is the nature of the salvation that God promised we will inherit in Christ? What will it be like, to use his words, in the world to come. In the author's mind, that answer is found all the way back in the Old Testament. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with Psalm 8, and I would invite you to turn there. Psalm chapter 8, Brent read it for us this morning. It's a great psalm, and I'm sure most of us are familiar with it. We sing a portion of it frequently in the modern church when we sing the words, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's verse 1. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the avenger cease. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty, and you make him to rule over the world, over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In the author's mind, this answer to the question of what will happen in the end times, what will it be like, what has God saved us into, the beginning of that answer starts here. Now, can you guess what truth has gotten David so pumped up about the glory of God? 
Here David is meditating on God's truth. He's looking into the stars, as it were. He sees the moon and the stars and all that God has created, and he's pondering some great truth. Do you have any idea what truth it is that David's pondering? I'll tell you. David is set on fire that night as he meditated on the doctrine of biblical anthropology. Now, how many of you spent your time in the Word this week glorying in God's revealed will through biblical anthropology? Not many of us. We don't normally think or have not disciplined ourselves to think theologically. But David was a disciplined man. He got thinking about what God had revealed previous to Psalm 8 about man. And he was struck down by it. And he immediately saw the glory of God and said, Lord, how is it that you could even think of us? But you have. But you have. And you not only think of us, you not only care for us, but you have made us rulers of your world. David was sitting up one night pondering the doctrine of man as God has revealed it in his word. And we should be as well. David knew the answer to all of those questions. David knew what the origin of man, of man was. I dare say most of us haven't pondered these things because we don't understand what the Bible teaches about the purposes for man, and so we're not really interested in the doctrine of man. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Does human life have any meaning? Are we just the result of some cosmic accident that took place billions of years ago in some primordial swamp? Or is there something greater at work here? David knew the answer to all of those questions. And to make them cry out in a song of praise unto his God. Notice in verse 6 of Hebrews 2 that the author jumps right back to the part about man. And you can look at it in Hebrews 2. It's pretty much a straightforward quotation out of Psalm 8. He doesn't give the whole psalm, but only a part of it. And he writes this, verse 6. But one has testified somewhere, where? Psalm 8, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. You see what he's doing? He reached into this psalm, and he pulled out the one section that talked about the glory of man. And he's doing it to make a point. You see, David understood that even though man seems to be an insignificant occupant of the universe, God, nevertheless, has appointed him as ruler of the world. And indeed, he was in the beginning. And now, in order to see what David was thinking about, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Go back with me. What is the author of Hebrews talking about? Well, he was talking about what David was talking about. And what was David talking about? Well, he was talking about what God revealed at the very beginning of his word, Genesis chapter 1. Look at verses 26 through 31 with me. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which 
has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw what he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's original plan for man. I want you to notice the word rule in verse 26. Subdue, verse 28. Rule again in verse 28. You see, God's original purpose for man astonished David as he looked up into the night sky and saw the wonder of the universe. And he thought, God, in light of all of this glory, how is it that you have determined to make so much out of us? We are so insignificant, and your purpose in the creation seems so vast. How in the world can we have any part in that? And yet, you have made us to rule this earth. Notice man's God-given place in the world before the fall. This is amazing. When you think back on what God had originally intended for Adam and Eve in the garden, first Adam and Eve were given an astonishing position. An astonishing position. God made them a little lower. Now, maybe some of you picked up on the fact that when I read the text out of Hebrews, it said the angels. And when I read it out of Psalm 8, it said God. The word there is Elohim. And it could be translated either God or angels. And you'll probably see a little note next to that word in your text. In the Septuagint, it's recorded as angels. And that can very well be. God made man a little lower than the angels, at least for a little while. But not forever. But the point is clear. God gave man an exalted position. He gave man an exalted position in his world. Unlike anything that you and I can imagine to this day. And the author realizes that. And he's going to mention that here in just a minute. Notice, too, that God gave them special honor. He says, you crowned him with glory and honor. Adam and Eve were intended to be king and queen of the world. They were to be God's viceroys, ruling on his behalf in the world under his authority. They were to be his special stewards over all of God's creation so that everything that happened in the earth was under their authority. And third, notice that God gave them amazing authority. He put everything under his feet, the text says. In other words, everything that lived upon the earth was to be subject to the rule of man in a world system where trees are protected and babies are killed in our day. This is an astonishing claim, to be sure. In fact, the author of Hebrews even adds some commentary to make sure we don't miss his intent. He writes in verse 8, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. God intended for everything that can be subject to man to be subject to man. Now you might be thinking, Now, wait just a cotton-picking minute. I thought man is a sinner who lives every moment of his life by grace, who has no authority even over himself, let alone the world around him. And you would be right. The world doesn't seem to be under man's rule today, now does it? In fact, the exact opposite seems true and is true. Man seems to have to fight the earth just to survive. If you've ever been a farmer or lived on a farm, you know how frustrating it can be to wait for rain that never comes. Or to be ready, as California was this year, to harvest the fruit that you've waited for 
for 52 weeks and a freeze suddenly comes and destroys it all. I mean, how do we even survive? We have no control over the weather. We have no control over the sun. We have no control over even the things that we can see, let alone the things that we can't see. Instead of being rulers of the earth, it seems we have to fight for every scrap that we get out of it. If you're thinking that, then you're right on track with the author of Hebrews. He knows that. He is no fool. David knew that. Look at the end of verse 8. The author of Hebrews writes, But now we do not see yet all things subjected to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That is not what is happening right now. David is thinking back to the original order. And he knows that it will be restored. And he says, oh God, how can it be? I mean, it was infinitely more than we could ever imagine that you would send your son to die to rescue us so that we wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell. But could you really give us back the throne that Adam had? Lord, how majestic is your name. We are so unworthy. And yet God has ordained it to be. It's astonishing to think that God intended the rule of man in creation, but it's even more staggering to consider how we lost it. How we lost it. If the first truth the author of Hebrews would have us consider, consider is the intended rule of man in creation, the second is the lost rule of man in sin. The lost rule of man in sin. We don't know how long Adam and Eve reigned over the earth. But we know this, it wasn't very long. I don't think I need to spend a lot of time here because you know what happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan hated how God was glorifying himself and man. And so he came to the Garden and tempted the man to doubt God's word and turn their backs on his promises. And as a result, man, his rule, the rule of man was seized by Satan. So that Jesus called him the God of this world. The prince of the earth. And from that point on, women would suffer pain in childbirth, Genesis 3.16. The battle of the sexes was set in motion so that husband and wife would be at odds with one another, Genesis 3.17. And the earth would only yield its fruit by coercion, Genesis 3.22 and 23. Everything had changed. The scepter of Man's rule was ripped from his hand. Sin ruined everything. It ruined everything. When Adam sinned, his crown was toppled from his head, and his glory, authority, and rule were stolen away. We no longer rule the world. It rules us. And we do the best we can to survive against the weather and against disease. If you hear what's happening in my voice this morning, know for certain man has lost his rule. I've never once lost my voice by the grace of God. But I got pretty close this week and we'll see how I'm doing by the end of this message. Why does that happen? One word. Sin. Man has lost his rule. He's no longer the one who subjects all things under his authority, but is now subjected by them. Sin ruined everything. And virtually everything on earth that was intended to bless man has become a curse to him to some degree. Crops fail, disease is rampant, death is an ever present reality. Man no longer rules the world, and worse, he is even unable 
to rule himself. Why is there rampant crime in the world? Because there's sin. Why is there war and murder in every news broadcast? Sin. Why does every marriage struggle to survive? Sin. Why does disobedience in children come naturally, but submission needs to be rigorously trained into them? Sin. Why is there disease in the world? Sin. Why is there death? Sin. It all came about because of sin. And it all remains because sin. Sin is not just a disease. It is a law. Paul calls it a law. It's like gravity. It's always pulling us down. And as long as there is sin, man will always struggle. We will always be embattled. When man sinned, paradise was lost, and his rule was broken forever. You have trouble in your marital relationship? I know what the cause is. Sin. And by the way, that's real important to know, because if we know what the cause is, then we can apply the cure, right? That's all it is. If you're having trouble in your marriage, it's not an issue of incompatibility. It's an issue of sin. It's why I love to counsel couples. It's why I love to counsel people who are struggling in life and whatever it is. Because I know what God has provided. In Christ, God has provided us everything we need to conquer this force, this law, this disease called sin. And this is not the end of the story. Do you see the word yet in verse 8? But we do not yet see all things subject to him. Now some might say, well, isn't that speaking of Christ's rule? No. It can't be. Look at verse 9. It's said in contrast with verse 8. He says, we do not yet see all things subject to him, but we do see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So whoever it is he's talking about in the first hymn, it's got to be somebody other than Jesus. He's talking about man, the same as David was, the same as Moses was in Genesis 1. We do not yet see all things subject to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, we're going to get into that second part next week, but let me just give you a little introduction to that. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. Because of sin, God's law had a demand upon man. Man had a debt that he could never pay. That's the source of all the problems that plague us in this life. It is sin. And the only way to escape sin is to die. The only way to escape being a slave is to die. The wages of sin is death. That's what the law said. If you sin against God's holy law, there's only one sentence, death. That's what the law requires. And so someone had to die. But it couldn't just be anyone. You can die for your own sin. You could spend eternity in hell for your own sin, paying for it forever and ever and ever. But you could never pay for someone else's sin. It had to be someone who was so great, so glorious, that his death would be sufficient to pay the debt of everyone who would believe. And there was only one person who could do that. God. God. God, whose law it was that condemned man had to be the one who came to pay the debt. And so Jesus came. Brothers, 
This is the gospel. Sisters, this is the gospel. Children, oh, unbeliever, if you are here today and you are still under the curse of sin, there is hope for you. But it is only in the forgiveness of sins that was bought for you in the death of Christ. You say, will that change my life? It will change your eternity. It will change eternity for you. Here is our great hope. Jesus came to reverse the curse. And this is the third truth. First, he speaks of the intended rule of man in creation. And then he speaks of the lost rule of man in sin. And finally, number three, the recovered rule of man in Christ. In Christ alone. You see, the message of both Old Testament and New Testament is that the curse of sin will only hold sway for a little while. It is not permanent. Someday in the world to come, as the author of Hebrews calls it, the rule of man under God will be restored. Did you know that? How can that be possible? Well, it's possible because in salvation, God has united us with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when God looks to us, he sees his son. Paul says in Ephesians 1, that we now live in him. And that's interesting because I was in my quiet time yesterday reading the word of God for my own edification. And I was in John chapter 17. And Jesus reverses the order and says, well, while it's true what Paul said, that we are in Christ, Jesus said, yes, but I am in them. I in them and they in us, speaking of the Father and the Spirit, so that we would be one, so that the world will know that you sent me. How can it be possible that the... Re- The curse can be reversed. It can only be possible because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Not only that, but since we are now in Christ, we are not only saved from the penalty of sin, but listen, we have been made heirs, heirs to all that God intends to give his son. Do you realize what God saved you out of? Your sin? I think most of you do. But do you have any idea what he saved you into? Do you understand what it means to be in Christ? Do you realize that now you, if you are a child of God, now, John 17 says, God loves you. How much? As much as he loves the Son, as much as he loves Jesus, he loves you. That's astounding. And Ephesians 1.20 says that God raised Jesus up from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And chapter 2 verse 6 explains that God also raised us up with him and seated us on the throne with him. You see, Jesus came as the second Adam, Romans 6 explains, to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. What God had intended for humanity, the glory of man. Though, brothers, how that has been perverted in our day. I wish I had time to go into the history of that. When the Renaissance happened, And people began studying classical antiquity. They began learning the ancient languages of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. Scholars got all stirred up about the things that they were rediscovering. And that group of scholars, mainly in Italy, divided in half. One group looked at that in the south of Italy, around Rome, And they looked at that and said, oh, my goodness, look how wonderful man is. 
He's capable of doing anything. And they became Renaissance pagan scholars. And there was another group who learned the same language, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, and used it to study the Word of God and came away saying, Lord, how majestic is your name that you would make man as you have revealed him. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Did you realize that all of the reformers, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, you just name it, all of them, all of them were Renaissance scholars. And all of them were Roman Catholic. And every one of them learned the ancient languages so that they could study the word of God. And did they see an exalted man? Yes, they did. But in through the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the lens of Scripture, and they were humbled by it. And yet the world today does everything in its power to exalt man in himself. And so we have all kinds of misleading teachings today in psychology. Love yourself and all will be well. Trust your feelings. Believe in yourself. And your life will be good and happy and wonderful. The, the, the cure for crime in our day is if we could just get everyone to respect themselves and to see how valuable they are in themselves, then all would be well. And the more man loves himself, the more he does harm to everyone else. That's not what God intended. Rather, he intended us to look into the word of God and say, how great is our God. How great is our God. That he would take the likes of us and do anything for his glory. How great is our God. And the call of Scripture is get your eyes off yourself and put it on the glory of Christ. And then you will know the joy that God intended for you to know. You see, Jesus came as the second Adam to accomplish what Adam failed to do. And just as Eve was the bride of Adam, so the church is the bride of Christ. And because we are Christ's bride, we will reign with him forever over the new earth, which the author of Hebrews calls the world to come. We're not going to be floating around on clouds, beloved. We're not going to be shrunk down into pudgy little babies with wings and harps. God is, has created you for a purpose, and it is an eternal purpose. And this should be no surprise to us. If you have read your Bible at all, this should be no surprise to us. God has revealed it again and again and again and again in his word. You remember what Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. We quote this every year around Christmas time. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now listen, there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now tell me, has that happened yet? Has it happened yet? No. It hasn't happened yet. Remember the prophecy the angel brought to Daniel about the last of the four great kingdoms? He said, to him, that is the final ruler who would be Christ, 
To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and ever of of man in every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Is that his kingdom today? You say, well, he has his church. But yes, but is this kingdom on earth today? It is not. It is not. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. Gabriel said to Mary, he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And then in Revelation, we read of the day when this will actually come about. Revelation eleven fifteen: the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. When God creates the new earth, it will be living with people. It will be full of all of the saints of God. And there will be structure. And there will be government. And there will be art. And there will be, I don't know, everything that God has for us here will be perfect. Everything that we see the shadow of in this life will be in all of its glorious perfection in that world. And we will reign with him. I tell you, it's an astounding, an astounding promise of what we have been saved, not only from, but what we've been saved into. Christ is going to establish his kingdom and he will reign. How long? Forever and ever and ever and of his government and his peace, it will never end. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. There will be nations. There will be peoples. There will be government. Christ will be over all. And more than that, the glory, the pure and holy God-exalting glory of man will be restored. God has ordained that we will reign with him in this kingdom on earth. Do you realize that? Let me just give you a taste of it. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we will also reign with him. What does that mean? We see these verses and we go, Gee, I don't know what that wants. What, what that meant, let's just keep reading. What does it mean that we will reign with him? 1 Corinthians 6. I love this passage for other reasons. But, boy, this plays right into the apostles' point here. And by the way, now let me give you a little context here in 1 Corinthians 6. Christians were taking each other to court. They'd get mad at each other. They'd have a little dispute over something that was supposed to be built or something that was supposed to be done. And there's disagreement. They can't settle the disagreement. They were taking each other to court. And the Apostle Paul said, this is crazy. This is nonsense. Don't you know who you are? And then these things that I'm teaching you this morning, he took for granted that they knew it. And he says these words, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? And most of us say, no, didn't know that. Really? You see, the author of Hebrews' point is, you've exalted angels way up here. Do you not understand that in the world to come, angels will be here and man will be in their place? They will be servants indeed. But man will be under the Son of God, and we will reign with him, him as king, and we as sub-rulers under his authority. To the point that we will even be the judge of angels. You see, there's more than one kind of angel, right? You know this. There are the elect angels, the holy angels of God, and there are the wicked demonic spirits who have followed Satan one-third of all the angels that God created, followed Satan. And one day they will be judged. 
And we understand, right, that Christ will be their judge. But do you understand that he will delegate that authority to us? How? I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like. All I know is what the Word of God says. Romans chapter 2, verse 8, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We like that, right? The Holy Spirit testifies with us, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. How do I know that? Well, 1 John tells us how we can know. Because you're living in obedience to the truth. You're seeing answered prayer. You love to be with the people of God. The Holy Spirit is producing His fruit in your life. His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. But the next verse, verse 17. And if children, heirs. Heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs of what? I ask you, heirs of what? Listen, the son is the firstborn, right? The prototokos. He is the one who is in superior rank above everyone. And God, the father, as it was set up in, in Jewish culture, the father would have sons, and whoever the first son was, especially if he was the only son, the only son would get everything that the father owns that would be his inheritance. What is it that the father owns? A simpler question would be, what is it that the father doesn't own? Because that would be nothing. The father owns everything, and he is going to give it to who? To his son. But there's another dynamic there, because it's not only to his son, but also to all who are in the son. We become co-heirs with Christ. I was reading one day, and I've shared this with you in, in the book of John. And God has his word for the churches. And the angel was talking to John, and it comes time for the seal to be broken on the scroll, right? And no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And John begins to weep. Remember that scene? Did you ever ask yourself, why is he weeping? Why is he crying? I've looked in commentary after commentary after commentary. I don't know anyone who talks about why was John crying. I think they just assume we know. They say, you know, uh, a mist in the pulpit is going to be a fog in the pew. And I think they're just counting on that. They're, they're counting on thinking that since they don't know, we won't care. But I cared. And I'm thinking, John, why are you crying about this? Well, what's the scroll? This isn't too hard. What's the scroll? It's the title deed to the earth. It's the title deed to the inheritance that God is giving to his son and that we are co-heirs of. And no one was worthy to open the scroll. And John began to weep. What was he thinking? I think what he was thinking was, you mean to tell me we suffered as we did? We were faithful to the end? Because there was a promise of us being co-heirs with Christ? And now there's no one worthy to open the scroll? You mean it was all a farce? And he wept. And the angel came and said, Don't cry. Don't weep. Look to the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy. To open the scroll. And the inheritance will be yours. Because it is his. It is what God has saved us into. Heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. So that all that belongs to him. Belongs to you. He is the second Adam. And you church are his bride. And anything that the husband owns is owned and enjoyed by the wife. If it all belongs to him, then it belongs to you. 
I think this is what C.S. Lewis was thinking of when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the following six books. As the children were all viewed as kings. Kings who had not yet ascended the throne, but kings indeed, he understood. He understood that we have become children of God, and now we are heirs to all that is God's. We just haven't realized we just haven't realized the full end of that yet. But one day we will. Revelation 3.21 says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, and I also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, we will reign with him. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. That's the scroll I was just referring to. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign where? Upon the earth. The new earth. But let's make it even more simple. Matthew 5, 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, the meek will what? Inherit the earth. What does that mean if it's not completely associated and connected to all the other promises that one day the Lord will set up his kingdom and we will reign with him? The rule that was lost in Adam will be restored. How great is our God. Someday, God is going to reverse the curse. And when he does, Jesus will reign upon the earth from his glorious throne, and we, the redeemed, will rule with him and under him. We tend to think of eternal life as so limited and boring but God has revealed it to be a very complex economy on the earth that, requ- that, uh, that requires all kinds of things of us. And we will know the joy of living eternally with our King. As Randy Alcorn says, we are part of God's family, and ruling the universe is the family business. So get ready. He's grooming you for the work to come. But get this, how will we be placed in his kingdom will be determined by our faithfulness to him here in this life. How we will be placed in his kingdom will be directly associated with our faithfulness in this life. You see purpose? You see meaning here? Jesus said that whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much and will on that day. In Luke 19, 17, he said, Well done, good and faithful slave. We all long to hear that, right? We all long to hear the Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And we quote that a lot, don't we? We want to be found faithful. We want to hear God say, we want to hear the Lord Jesus say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you understand what the rest of that verse says? Well done, good and faithful slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you will be given authority over ten cities. A reference to his coming reign. Now I realize that these scriptures raise a lot of questions in our minds about how it's all going to play out and what it will look like exactly. But while the Bible gives us little glimpses into that coming kingdom, God has not revealed all the details. It wasn't his purpose to tell us everything that is to come. It will be a glorious and divine surprise to all of us. But he wants us to know it's coming. And I think it's because he wants us to have something to live for. Something to look forward to. Something that we can get our arms around at least a little bit. And say, there really is more. We're not going to be floating around in the clouds. God is going to have glorious work for us to do. And we may not understand it, but we know it's coming. And so we strive to be found faithful. 
We are simply left to trust his promise and look forward to the day when it will all be brought to fulfillment, just as he said. Nevertheless, there are some practical applications for us to consider as a result of this truth. Let me give them to you one at a time. There are three. First, the reality of who we are right now in Christ tells us that we have the power to accomplish in this life everything the Word of God commands. Unregenerate man is a slave to sin. He can't help but sin. All he does is sin. He might stop sinning in one area and take on another sin, but all he does is sin. But a child of the king, as children of the king, we have been given the authority to conquer sin in our lives, no matter how deeply ingrained or how powerful it may seem to be. If you're struggling in your marriage, do you realize what you have? If you are a child of God, do you realize how blessed you are to have the gift of this book that has been given to all who belong to Christ, who all who are fellow heirs with him? We have everything we need for life and godliness. And we have the Holy Spirit to empower it. You can have so much more in that marriage than what you have now. You can have so much more with your children than you know of now. And that stubborn, wicked habit that you hate and love, you can conquer that. You're a child of the King, for goodness sakes. You've been given the inheritance of Christ on this earth through His Word and by His Spirit. You can conquer that. You can do everything that God has commanded you to do. And if you need help doing that, that's what the church is for. That's why we're here. Second, the reality of the world to come should inspire us to persevere in this life. That was his primary point to these beloved Christians, to these Jewish believers. You Can you imagine how encouraging this must have been to this little persecuted church to realize that while they were being beaten down by the world, now someday they would rule it for the glory of God and their own joy. Persevere, little flock. Persevere. God has made us more than conquerors through him who loved us. God will not let us go. Romans 8 18 through 21, Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for what, class? What is the world under sin groaning for? What does the world, not, not the unbeliever, but the groaning creation that suffers under sin What does Paul say it looks for and longs to see happen? It is this. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into, listen, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God will make all things new. And he will restore to his people the scepter of Adam. And number three. It should fill us with a holy passion to live faithfully and to take risks for the glory of God. There is purpose here. There is meaning to this life. There is opportunity here. This is not all there is. When we get to heaven, when we get to eternity, when we start living what God has designed us to live in his kingdom, we'll look back on this short life and say, Oh, why did I waste such time? Why did I blow so many opportunities? To make an impact for eternity. Now listen, beloved. You know I love you, right? But let me ask you a question. What are you doing with your life that's really going to count for eternity? 
What are you doing with your life that's going to count for eternity? Jesus' parable of the talents teaches us that God has entrusted us with an enormous amount of spiritual capital. What are you doing to make good on his investment? Because to whom much is given, much will be required. Oh, beloved, can you see a little more clearly how great is your salvation? It's not just about what God has saved us from. It is also about what God has saved us to that matters. If you've been born again, you've become a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And by the way, this puts a whole new understanding on that term, doesn't it? King of who? Kings. And who are the kings going to be? His people. And Lord of Lords. And who are the Lords going to be? His people. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And someday we're all going to reclaim Adam's rule to the eternal glory of God and our own unquenchable joy. Are you ready for that day? Are you living for that day? I pray that God will find us faithful. 